All right, welcome everyone. You're, you're a part of this segment called The Dirty Secrets of the Financial Elite, which is a book that I wrote. And I'm going to share with you every week, twice a week, a chapter from that book. So you don't have to pay, you just listen and enjoy. And I'd love for as many people to have that opportunity because it's about achieving financial freedom in New Zealand, as well as protecting you from yourself in the sense. We have psychological and cognitive biases that let us down from time to time. And I just want to give you control over that and more clarity on what you want from life. So hope you enjoy it. And uh, this is the chapter for the day. This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Mole from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Chapter 8. What makes an investment good? Now, you know what to avoid. Let's start looking at what constitutes a good investment. The most universally accepted way for achieving diversity is by investing in the four main asset classes. Cash slash cash equivalents, bonds, property and shares. The proportion of which you invest in each asset class is dependent on your risk appetite, which in this case is a reflection of volatility, not the threat of you losing all your money. I'll explain this later, but the sheer volume of which you are investing and the low correlation each asset class has to each other means the likelihood of losing all your money is very low. What else is remarkable about this investment strategy is that you can tailor the portfolio to match your volatility tolerance. The reason for structuring it this way stems from Nobel Peace Prize winner Harry Markowitz, Modern Portfolio Theory, where an effective frontier is achieved by matching the expected return to any given level of risk. Your eyes might start glazing over at this point, but let's break it down. Number 1. Cash and Cash Equivalents This asset class is typically used in a portfolio as it is the most liquid, sellable asset of the four. What makes it very liquid is that it is a short term, usually 90 days, and has a high credit rating. This is important as it can pay the fees of running the portfolio, or if you need to make a withdrawal, it is accessible relatively quickly. A few examples of these include short-term government bonds, where they need money for a project, and commercial papers, that forms a short-term corporate debt. When I say that they have high credit ratings, this isn't always the case with every fund manager being different. So, it's essential that you understand that credit ratings are usually decided by three main scales, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and the Fitch scale, as you'll see in the PDF attachment. There have been times as well, like the global financial crisis, for example, where the credit ratings were not accurate. They're called subprime mortgage-backed securities, MBS, and collateralized debt obligations, CDO. Basically, a whole lot of crap bundled together to look sparkly. 
On the surface, it ticked boxes with a high rating, but mainly it was a collection of home buyers with bad ratings sliced together and approved to look good. A general rule of thumb is to stick to government debt, local government debt, and banks with high credit ratings. Remembering that the intention of this fund is reliability and low volatility, not returns. Number two, bonds. This is basically the longer term version of number one. You lend money to groups, government, banks, and corporations likely to pay you back. The two ways to make money are firstly from the interest they pay for the right to have your money, and secondly, you can sell your loan to someone else. This gets a bit confusing, but the idea is if you have a good interest rate compared to the other investors, then you're like a cheeseburger at the fat camp. Everyone wants a piece. So let's say you loan 10 k to the government, and they offer a 3% fixed return for 5 years. If the other loans out there only provide a 2% fixed return, then you've suddenly become very popular, so sell. The value you get from this sale is called the capital appreciation, or, in other words, how much others appreciated your capital. This, once again, is capital gain, so it's tax-free, but the fixed return isn't, as it is income. The thing, the thing to keep an eye on with this investment is the credit rating once again. More concerning is that in today's economic climate where fixed returns bond yields are very low, thus conservative investors, in my opinion, are taking undue risk in the pursuit of higher returns. They are investing in double B or lower corporate debt with overpriced shares, large unprofitable companies, and cheap loans for corporates. Currently, the assumption would be that something has to give. If suddenly these corporations were to experience an economic downturn, then they are unlikely to have the cash flow to push through those tough times. Then it could get ugly. For the investor, this means that they may default on the loan they promised. Not ideal for the conservative investor. Secondly, the expectation is that the economy will experience a recession sometime soon. I'm not saying I agree with this perception as predicting the future is only real in myths and legends, but the markets experience ups and downs similar to that of seasons. We have spring, expansion, summer, peak, autumn, contraction, and winter, recession. If we were to experience a recession, then these corporate bonds could fall like dominoes. So I implore you to choose the more vanilla version of investment-grade bonds of A or higher. To be on the safe side as the intention of this asset class is to be accessible for withdrawals and to lower the risk of the portfolio. Also, it is worth noting what leads to an increase or decrease in the fixed or variable returns offered by said groups. Often the two things that influence it most is the level of demand and the cost of cash. Essentially what banks provide to you is a product, cash, that cash, as you can imagine, they get from other groups that have cash. One of these main groups is the central bank, or in New Zealand it's called the Reserve Bank. What the central bank does is offer to take cash or loan cash at a specific rate, the official cash rate. Then as you can imagine, if one group is offering a certain price, the others will try to compete. The result of this is the rate that other banks charge each other often stay at or below the rate offered by the central bank. Then being a business... Banks charge you, the consumer, more than what they paid. Similar to a wholesale price versus a retail price. So if the central bank increases the wholesale rate, that should lead to an increase in the retail rate, which eventually, due to the increased cost of borrowing, flows under the rate offered for bonds. For you, if you had a lower rate than the new rate, then selling your bond has suddenly gotten challenging. You are now the seller at the fat camp. The reason I mention this is to show that if you intend to use your portfolio in retirement, with continual withdrawals, 
then it'd be wise to have medium-term bonds, say, one to two years, so at least if you end up with a salad, you don't have to eat it too long before you can buy the new cheeseburger. Number three, property. This is not property as you know it. I'm not talking about your family home or being the sole owner of a rental property. What I'm talking about is owning shares in a rental property, or in other words, a percentage of the rent and its capital value. The two main ways it is recommended to do this is through real estate investment trusts and listed property securities. The reason I say this is that once again, you want the asset you own to have a market for it to be brought and sold. These two options provide you with that opportunity. Another important note is that this asset has far less liquidity than bonds and more volatility. So it should be perceived as a longer termed investment and the portion kept relatively low. Number four, shares. The final piece of this portfolio puzzle is that of shares. You'll notice in the earlier chapters that I said the three main successful ways humanity has invested over the last few hundred years are in land, business, and loans. Well, the land is property, loans are cash and bonds, and shares are owning a percentage of a business. You share the company's profits, dividends, and the value of what you own can appreciate, grow, provided others appreciate it too. In this instance, dividends are classed as income, so are taxed accordingly. Let's say you buy shares for $4 each, then in the future someone buys it off you for $10. Meaning if you brought 1,000 shares at the price of $4, then you've just made yourself six grand tax free in New Zealand. Not too shabby, right? Well, the thing to be aware of is no matter how smart a person thinks they are, it's tough to predict what the price of that share will be in the future. Also, there have been many an investor that has tried to beat the market, outperform the index. The most commonly used benchmark to compare their performance against is Morgan Stanley Capital International, or MSCI for short. As it is close to 160,000 indexes with data as far back as 1968. Take the MSCI World Index, for example has around 1,655 different shares in 23 developed countries and since inception in 1987 has grown annually by 8% gross before fees, tax and inflation or in the last 10 years by 9.95% gross. So not only does an active manager need to beat this index, but they need to beat it on the top of the fees they charge. Kind of like trying to win a yacht race with parts of the sail missing. Sure, if you get the right gust to win with the right crew, then you can win. But it's hard to do it consistently. A few fund managers have been able to achieve this. It's just unlikely for them to be able to keep it up. There have been a few contributing factors for this being the case. One, if someone finds a secret recipe for beating the market, eventually the market finds out and the benefit is no longer unique. Similar to when the four-minute mile was an unconquerable task until Sir Roger Bannister beat it by 0.6 of a second in 1954. And funnily enough, someone beat him 46 days later. In that moment, he was the king, but quickly his achievements became the norm. Today's winner can be tomorrow's loser. So if the active managers struggle to beat the index, then what is the alternative? The alternative is what they call a passively managed index fund. Historically, a passively managed index fund has outperformed most active fund managers. By an index fund, what I mean is that you invest say, in, say, the top 50 companies in your country or the world, depending on what index fund you have. The idea is that if a company has no, is no longer in the top 50, then you can sell your shares and buy shares in one that replaced them. 
The great benefit of this style of investing is that even Blind Freddy can run it. So the fees are very low. All the fund manager has to do is keep track of who the top companies are and buy slash sell to maintain the criteria of the index fund. Not too, not too hard with today's technology, so fees can be very low, and this strategy can be applied for most assets. There's more to be discussed around this topic, but for now it's worth mentioning a small yet essential addition to your portfolio. Number five, alternative assets. This includes financial assets that don't quite fit in the above categories. More specifically, commodities, which are essentially the raw materials used to create a good or service. Gold, silver, crude oil, etc. The benefit of commodities is that they can perform well during periods of high inflation. As you can imagine, if more people are buying shit, thus increasing the price, then suppliers need more shit to make the shit. Another benefit of commodities is that they don't have a strong correlation with the above categories, in the sense that the price is decided by a separate demand and supply market. So once again, by having a small exposure to alternative investments allows you to capture more of the potential gains while spreading out the ups and downs.